0: Welcome to the recovery hour on News Radio KLBJ, hosted by Personal Responsibility Recovery. Join the conversation. Call or text now at 512-836-0590. Now, here's your host, Mark Myers. And good afternoon, and welcome to the
1: recovery hour. Uh, we're every week between 12 and 1. Personal responsibility. Recovery brings you the recovery hour. Um you know, our, our biggest mission here is to destigmatize substance use disorder, to destigmatize alcoholism, addiction. Um, it is, after all, the leading cause of death between eighteen and forty five, and uh, it's just the giant elephant in the room. And you know, over seventy million Americans are affected by substance use disorder directly or indirectly. Uh, Twenty two million Americans in active addiction. The numbers are just staggering of what goes on, and. And as an industry, as a treatment center, we we just have to do better. We have to raise awareness. We have to destigmatize it. And that's what we try and do each Sunday. Uh, please feel free to join us. Call or text in 512-836-0590 with any questions. And you know, we're we're a pretty good resource. We're uh, one of the only small 12-bed that is also clinical in nature. We've got a, just an incredible staff, and of course with me uh, Dr. Kirby Stewart. Uh, Dr. Stewart, of course, a
2: host of the Recovery Hour. Good morning, Dr. Stewart, and and how are you this morning? I'm great, great, Mark. Uh, you actually introduced us by saying good afternoon today. You you got it right. It now only took to about only
1: took about ten shows.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Anyway, I'm glad to be here. It it always gives me great pleasure to talk about uh, recovery, and uh, of course we sometimes have to talk about addiction in order to be able to point to the solution, which is recovery. Uh, And uh, we also have today with us uh, a repeat guest, one of my favorite guests, Patrick Hensley.
3: Good afternoon, Patrick. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Got that one right. Hensley Sober Living. Hensley House Sober Living. Hensley
1: House, yep. Yep.
3: Uh, Patrick
2: also heads up an organization uh, uh, called Not a Glum Lot. And uh, Patrick, why don't you review basically what that organization is for us?
3: Sure, sure, sure. Not a Glam Lot is a local Austin 501c3 nonprofit. And the short story is we raise funds to take folks that are new to recovery from substance use disorder, new new to recovery, and to reteach them how to have fun and enjoy their lives without booze, without drugs. Uh, A lot of folks, when they first get sober... They are happy to be out of that cycle of addiction, but uh, they have an ingrained fear that there goes anything fun. Um, and so we do our very best to help show them that, hey, you know, we understand that you have that fear. We get it. But we're, we're here to show you that uh, that fear is unsubstantiated. You can have just as much fun out here that you ever did before probably a whole lot more and you get to remember it that's a that's a big bonus piece <laughs> and we get to go out and have a lot of fun i'm a fun captain i'd take people to concerts to paintball to fishing and hunting and go-kart racing you name it and we get those folks out there having fun again and and we love it when at, at the end of an event they're like whoa man that that was that was fun that was a, I, I, that, that was great i thought that was going to be boring thank you when are we going again that's our purpose it, it's, it's it really is helpful.
1: fun to to watch the light come back on, as they say.
2: Absolutely. And it's actually quite necessary for recovery, in my view. Uh, And we've talked a lot about how addiction uh, uh, hijacks the uh, capacity of the brain to enjoy everyday ordinary experiences, especially those involving relationships with other people. And when we're unable to enjoy, life-sustaining experiences, we, we tend to uh, devolve pretty quickly into a pretty sad state of mind. So although the addiction makes that worse, uh, recovery ought to be about making that better. And, and just like the, uh, the devolution away from having an enjoyable life uh, occurs during addiction, uh, in recovery, it moves in exactly the opposite direction and perhaps even faster as people uh, that as that light comes on and uh, people uh, discover that they can experience joy and and pleasure through uh, engaging in life sustaining activities.
1: I think we were all someone different before addiction just completely took strangle, uh, the reward system, as you say. And I know for me that, that once I did discover I could have a little fun, I started having a lot more fun. I, I, I have a life beyond compare today with, uh, and I know I owe that to recovery, uh, Mm -hmm. because I didn't when I was consumed with the substance use that, that seemed to, uh, well, overtake my life. The consequences became so severe that, uh, it forced me into a treatment plan, forced me into recovery. And thank God it did. Um, I don't think I would be sitting, there's no doubt in my mind, I would not be sitting here had that not occurred. I think that's a pretty common theme with uh, people who are in recovery. And we had talked, I I think just loosely, um, Dr. Kirby, we were and and I think Patrick, you framed it as a, a moment of lucidity. I, I I've always called it a moment of clarity. But you know, when when do you seek that recovery and or treatment or or doing something different? When do you act? And even some of the people who are under the influence at uh, at their lowest spots, they all, in spite of the denial, in spite of all the stigma, in spite there's a moment where they say, I need help. And sometimes that lasts as as Patrick was saying, about fifteen minutes. <laughs> so Yeah. And and you were you were talking briefly about how how do we prepare for that? What what is the best course? How do we get that person while they're in that moment of lucidity, how do we get that person to Help? How do we, how do, what, what can someone do to help them?
2: Yeah, that's, that's the million dollar question. And, and we're often asked that by family members and, and friends of people who are suffering from addiction. I, I would even say that we ought not to wait for that moment of lucidity or moment of clarity. It often happens, but even more often what happens is I've had enough. I've had enough. I I cannot do this anymore. But the individual who's saying that they've had enough oftentimes cannot imagine anything different. And so a role that we can play if we hope to help them is to help them imagine that it could be different and that if they've had enough stop and move in a different direction. And, and sometimes that moment of lucidity uh, opens up as soon as they're able to admit that they've had enough. So I would suggest be ready to have that conversation whenever that arises for the individual who's suffering from addiction. Prepare yourself for that conversation and be ready to have it. And then, Patrick, you shared some really good ideas earlier also about what... Other things one can do logistically speaking to get ready
3: sure sure it, it's all, it's it's prepare for that conversation but prepare logistics because uh, when that when that uh, whether that's a family member a friend um, when they say you know I need help I've had enough that is not the time to start looking for a treatment center that's not the time to start looking for help because that is a very short window before that person uh, takes another drink, has another hit, takes another pill, and then they, they feel better again. And I don't need help. No, I'm fine. So when that time comes that someone asks for help, already have a plan in place. So if you know of a friend or a loved one that that's that's struggling, look now. Find a plan now. Find a treatment center now that, that can work with you all with, with the scenario that you have so that when that moment comes, that's not the time to start looking. When that moment comes, you can jump in a car, have a bag packed, jump in a car, Type in the GPS and give that treatment center a call. Hey, I, this is so-and-so. I spoke to you last week about my son. We are headed there right now. We'll be there in 33 minutes. And,
1: and I,
3: I know it's probably
1: a, a much deeper much deeper conversation, which we'll get to here just in a, just in a oh, few minutes. We've got to take a little bit of a break. Again, as we discuss these ideas, uh, please feel free to uh, call or text any questions. Uh, we're a great resource. 512-836-0590. Uh, of course, News Radio, KLBJ 590. We uh, always enjoy bringing, uh, bringing the resources out that we can. So again, 512-836-0590. And we'll be back here in just uh, just a couple of minutes after a break.
0: Could you use more income during retirement? Are you and your spouse 62
2: or older? Do you have good equity in your home? If you answered yes, tune in Saturday at 2 for the Ray Massey Reverse Mortgage Show here on News Radio KLBJ. Ray talks about reverse mortgages and how they can help you increase your cash flow and age comfortably in your own home. To learn more, call Ray today at 855-266-1600. That's 855-266-1600. And tune in Saturday at 2 for the Ray Massey Reverse Mortgage Show.
1: Today's misinformation can be
0: tomorrow's fact. It's bad information. And that's not good. It's a very bad situation. We are real news. This is real life. What really occurred? By checking in here three, four, five times a day, you avoid misinformation
1: and get real information. What is disinformation and what's not?
0: For real life. In real time. In
1: real time.
0: Get real on News Radio KLBJ informed for today's
3: world. The Ukrainian people fighting for their freedom. Prepared
0: for tomorrow's America. The
3: economy. Prices
0: are still rising. And connected to the community. Every day. violent
3: crimes that unfolded in the city. It's your world.
0: Updated at the top of the hour and 30 minutes fast. And now I can stay in the know.
3: It's such a big deal
0: what's happening right now. Keeping you in the know. I'll make this world. And in the now. Austin's 24-hour news station, News Radio KLBJ. Those kinds of questions. Like what you hear? Make sure you never miss a show every Sunday at noon. Go to personalresponsibilityrecovery.com to learn more. Now, back to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ with Mark Myers. And
1: welcome back to the Recovery Hour. Uh, of course, our host, Dr. Kirby Stewart, our special guest, Patrick Hensley from Not a Glum Lot and Hensley House Sober Living. And of course, I'm Mark Myers with Personal Responsibility Recovery. we got a great team in this room right now. Um, if you want to join the conversation, 512 836 0590. Talking a little bit about how to get ready to help someone. And uh, I know that uh, I know that when that person says, "I've had enough," if the first thing you do is hit Google and start there, um, that's not really a great preparation scenario, I don't think. I think it uh, I think it requires if you know this moment is coming, if you feel like this moment is coming, I think educating, the family members educating as much as possible. What what do those scenarios look like, uh, Dr. Stewart? I, I know does it involve detox is there you know different uh, or s- medical stabilization i think is is the way you prefer to do that yeah uh yes i'm I'm learning i hate, uh, I
2: hate the term detox yeah but not not
1: yeah. only do i say good afternoon now you have me saying medical stabilization so we're there you go uh, we're growing every time that is correct growing there you every, go before long i'm gonna sound like i know what i'm doing
2: yeah uh, well, it, it's important to keep in mind when we're talking about this island of lucidity, as I like to call it. We all have our favorite phrase to describe that moment of grace that seems to arise when someone has had enough and they're they're graced with the uh, insight that uh, they need help. And uh, we're suggesting that you need to have all your ducks in a row anticipating that moment, be ready for it. And that includes having done some research in terms of what the typical approach is for initiation of recovery. And, and I'm going to very quickly outline it. It, it, depending on the disease severity, the individual may need medical stabilization, uh, as they go through a withdrawal period, once they stop using, Uh, typically the determination is made through a screening and assessment that the individual would undergo as soon as they present for care. And that, that screening will indicate whether or not they're likely to need medical stabilization. And if they do, uh, or if they're uh, at risk for, uh, medical problems coming out of the withdrawal then they will be referred for, uh, quote, detox, unquote, uh, and so that they can receive the, the medical support that they need to uh, get through the, the withdrawal period. Uh, not everyone needs that. In fact, uh, probably uh, less than half uh, of the individuals who present for residential treatment actually end up needing that. Uh, after that screening and assessment, the individual thereafter would either go to a residential treatment or to an outpatient program or to a, a, a hospital or an inpatient unit for the medical stabilization. Those are the three primary uh, options that most people would, would be offered at that point in time. And again, the, the uh, intense intensity of care is determined by the disease severity, and one can't really predict disease severity uh, without having done that screening and assessment. So it all begins with that. Uh, and the, And that screening and assessment uh, can include all kinds of questions about uh, complicating factors and risk factors that make us suspect that we're dealing with a a big problem or a a relatively small problem. For example, if there are co-occurring health disorders or mental health disorders, that will complicate things pretty quickly and make withdrawal support a lot more likely.
1: Well, I know it's a, a, a big, big trusting someone to take care of someone medically. Trusting someone to suddenly have the care of a person, uh, especially a child or a spouse, for 28 days—that seems like a—that seems like forever. But I know on the other side of it, uh, my experience has been that there's a whole new life waiting there, and the preparation for that. Um, Patrick, you had a, a a lot of experience in this, in helping people get into recovery, and helping them get stabilized and working through these processes. It happens very quickly. Was that a fair statement?
3: It does. It happens very quickly. And luckily part of of what I do being a sober living homeowner is visit treatment centers. I visit a lot of them and I don't just go and take a photo out front and post it. I go in and try to meet as many people as I can, sit in on groups, meet the staff, meet some of the residents there, try to get a good feel for what's going on there. And so I have that Rolodex in my head. So then when I get a call from a friend, hey, my son really needs some help, I'll say, okay, tell me about this situation. Uh, what's his drug of choice? What, is he drinking? Is he using? What, what is it? And how long has he been doing that? Um, has, he had, has he ever been to rehab before? Has he ever been to a substance abuse treatment center before? What's his history with that? Any other major medical conditions that are going on? Is he, does he have a pacemaker? Is he in a wheelchair? Does he have ext- bad asthma? Um, What about mental health? Is he drinking and schizoaffective? Is he drinking and uh, like severe anxiety or depression? Let me know about those sort of things. How old is he? Um, And based on those ideas, I can get a good picture of like "This this place might be a good fit for him. This place might be a good fit for him and give out a couple of recommendations to that mom. She then calls those places, gets all the information from them so that when her son does say, you know, mom, I can't do this anymore. I need help. She's got those places already set up she's got a spot already ready to go green lighted so that when he does ask for help they can be in a car and driving stat real quick
1: and and we do make a a kind of a note i guess for lack of a better word it's something that we've always said is is probably the biggest key in choosing a treatment center is choosing the right one that is able to handle co-occurring disorder or is it residential or is it faith-based or is it, uh, there's so many different variations of that. And all too often when faced in that moment, in that I've got to do something right now without the proper planning or any pre-planning, we simply choose the guy with the biggest Google ad and the biggest advertising budget. And that's not necessarily the, the place you need to go. Um, so I, I do encourage folks to follow some of the Follow some of the direction here. It's not that, that well, actually, we are experts on this. <laughs> say, it's not that, yeah, we, we are experts on this. Uh, that's, that's why yeah. we
2: have a show. <laughs> and I, you know, I wanted to mention a couple of things. First of all, for the listening audience, those questions that Patrick just referred to are basically the screening questions. And so that was a great example of what I meant when I was talking about screening and assessment. Uh, you just did that, basically, in so many words. Uh, but I want to ask you, Patrick, what are some of the characteristics of a treatment center that you have a lot of confidence in? And I'm not just expecting you to put in a plug for personal responsibility yeah, no. and
3: recovery. <laughs> I already know we're excellent. But uh, <laughs> uh, so a couple different things. Um, you know, one right off the bat is size. I just I just went through this. Uh, a fellow called and said his his brother needed help and went through all everything and went through all the questions and answered all those questions for me and I uh, was thinking about, oh, this place might be a good place. This, this, this treatment center sounds good. Sounds like it'd be a big fit. And he said, oh, and he does have a pacemaker. And I said, well, never mind. That place is, you know, the each building is so far away from the other. It's it's gigantic. You would not make it from building to building. So here's a smaller place that could do that. Um, so trying to find the best fit. At some places, some treatment centers are really good with the, with the chronic person that just keeps coming back, just been to 13 treatment centers. Some places are really good at that. Other places are really good at being that first treatment center. Um, some places are really good with pain management. Like um, the other places, like it seems to be that their forte is younger folks. It seems to be that other places have their forte being older folks. So there's different treatment centers that cater to different things. I don't think they set out to do that, but eventually each treatment center will find its niche and some find something that they're really good at. And it takes some getting to know them. That's why I'm I'm with you. Uh, Mark, that going on to Google sometimes isn't the best is the best way to do that.
1: Well, and and I know that PR recovery is uh, we're fairly young and we're still finding our niche to some degree, but with the horsepower that we have with a being truly clinical and only 12 beds, it allows us a unique position to be able to treat medical dual diagnosis with, uh, you know, Dr. William Loving, of course, our, our medical director is a psychiatrist. He's a fellow of addiction uh, medicine. Dr. Duke, um, also a fellow of addiction medicine. Uh, of course, Dr. Kirby Stewart, uh been doing this for years and years and years and years, and uh, <laughs>
2: well, not quite that long. <laughs> okay, well, you know, maybe just like, just two I years. I like to say decades. <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, yeah, and then and then we also have uh, our clinical director, is a master's degree social sure. worker, who's an excellent, excellent, group leader and counselor. So, so, yeah, we've we've constructed a staff that has years and years of experience that can focus in on each and every individual. And, and as we mentioned last week during the show, uh, we, we truly do implement an approach that includes mind, body, and spirit. And, uh, each element of those three aspects of, of, uh, the recovery process gets its proper focus, uh, in the way that we approach recovery initiation, which is basically what residential treatment is. It's recovery initiation.
1: It is, and, and I know that in, we've got a break coming up here in just a moment. The, the, I think Patrick will agree. I think Dr. Kirby, uh, Dr. Stewart will agree also, the 12-step programs, AA, NA, all of the other A's, that's just gotta be such a crucial part of it as well. And that's, of course, part of the, the curriculum. And, and for me, that's a real key to um, a lot of the treatment centers also is how active is the 12-step programs in the recovery process as well. Because that's where we dive into deep, deep dive into the spiritual parts of this program, which, you know, I have was quoted once saying it in a magazine article. And I didn't mean to, but I thought it was, you know, it... it we get a lot of flavors, different flavors of crazy that come into our, our treatment center. I, I have one. Everybody has one. That's not necessarily going to be treatable, treated and cured in 28 days or 60 days. That's a, that's a long, long process to get stable. But the recovery part of it, the tools needed to not continue to self-medicate, to not continue to use substances, that's what we can do. And we can load that tool bag up with every tool there is and show you how to use it really well. And for me, that's the role of a treatment center. That's, that's why we're there is to introduce how do you do this to treat a chronic disease that is progressive, insidious, that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. How do you treat that? And that's by treating the mind, it's by treating the body, and it's by treating the spirit exactly as as you just commented. And we're gonna we're gonna be back in just a couple of minutes. We have to take a break for the news, uh, news radio five ninety. Uh, call or text, join our conversation today five one two eight three six zero five ninety, and we'll be back with you here in just a couple
0: of minutes. Like what you hear, make sure you never miss a show every Sunday at noon. Go to personalresponsibilityrecovery.com to learn more. Now, back to the Recovery Hour on News Radio KLBJ with Mark Myers.
1: And welcome back. Good afternoon, of course, News Radio 590. Uh, Call or text us to join the conversation, 512-836-0590. And while we were in that old news break there for just a moment, uh, Patrick, we did have someone uh, that inquired about uh, treatment program a little while ago, and they've got a text back that that is asking you, "What is the average stay in your sober living home?" Uh, they have a 19-year-old son who is in a 90-day program. I want to start to understand what what's next. What's what's after the treatment program, which is of course your area of expertise. But what's after the treatment program for a 19-year-old average stay? I think I would probably want to move into your place for maybe a
3: year or two. It sounds really nice. <laughs> <laughs> we try to make it fun, and it, it is a good spot. Well, So what's next after treatment, after getting out of a substance abuse treatment center, is real life. Life comes at you fast. Um, we always say that the purpose of a sober living home is based on the concept that in, when someone is in a rehab, when someone's in a substance abuse treatment center, it's not too difficult to stay sober there. You're in a protected bubble. A lot of them are out in the middle of nowhere, um, far away from all the things. Um, and that's, that's great when they're like that. But boy, when, when they get out, uh, that's where the rubber hits the road and that's where a good sober living home comes in and that we try to help teach these men or women, if it's female sober living home, Hensley house is a men's sober living home. We try to teach these men how to apply what they learned in rehab into their everyday life. And that takes a lot of work, um, They've been given all a lot of tools. A lot of stuff has come at them very fast, and now they are out. And now there's a liquor store in the corner. Um, there's the dark web. You can get just about anything delivered anywhere these days. Uh, it's very easy to go and find whatever you might like. And so to be to go from the protection of that treatment center and in back into the public again, back into you know, John Q Public's area, um, that that takes some work and it takes some adjusting. It takes some getting used to. Um, Hopefully, at whatever treatment center this person is at, they have a discharge coordinator, discharge planner. Um, those people, that's their career, their staff. They are there to take a look at what this, how this guy's doing. How old is he? What, what was his thing? Um, how, how good has he been in the treatment center? How hard has he been working on it? And based on what they can tell and the experience that he's had there, they have hopefully gone through around the town and vetted some sober living homes, gotten to know the owners, gotten to see how they do things, and based on uh, kind of how this – particular person showed up, they can recommend a sober living home. Um, they'll they'll rec- make that recommendation to them, to the to the person that's there. They'll make the recommendation to the parents and talk it through and give them some benefits as to why sober living, what's the purpose behind it. To answer the question that was asked, the average length of stay at Hensley House is just under a year. We're at somewhere floating around between 11 months to 12 months. That seems to be the average at our house. I think the average, typical average, it's much lower than that. If I had to guess, I'd say the typical average is about three months. Just about every sober living home has a three-month minimum.
1: And I think a lot of that, in my experience, I'm, I'm sure Dr. Stewart as well, uh, has an a opinion or, or insight to that. Um, young men, young, young men that have been at home for a long time and have not quite made that transition, the year long at a sober living to me is just invaluable. You you really learn from the people that are there. You learn from the 12-step programs. You learn from the curriculum that a sober living home has and teaches you how to deal with life on life's terms, uh, as you mentioned. And a lot of times, someone even married, family, you know, that one month, two month separation sometimes to just reintegrate into the daily life and the stresses of work, the as you say, life comes at you very, very fast. and And sometimes that's a great step to go that direction. and uh, our our di- Susan Turner is uh, n- uh, not only our clinical director, but a, a licensed master of Social work. and uh, you know she has great insight into that. and that uh, that's an important part of, as you say, discharge planning. that's that's just crucial to the success of someone. Uh, I'm assuming yeah. Dr. Stewart agrees with that and probably can expound yeah. on it for, yeah. for,
2: for hours <laughs> absolutely, because absolutely. it is a
1: big subject.
2: <laughs> you know, if, if we take a broad view of the whole system of uh, recovery-oriented care delivery, uh, it, it, I think a lot of time spent in treatment might actually be better spent in a recovery home environment and uh, ideally uh, in treatment you're you're taken out of the using environment and you're taken out of ordinary life and so to be reintroduced to ordinary life and a work life and a life of uh, personal responsibility uh that transition into a recovery home is absolutely essential. You know, if somebody comes to me, they go through a 28 day or 30 day uh, recovery initiation phase during treatment and then they return to the very same environment that they left, their chances of of uh, finding success are pretty low. They really are because as you already pointed out, in 28 or 30 days, you're not going to change uh, one's entire approach to living. And and so that transition into a recovery home for many, many people is absolutely essential, especially one like Patrick's where they kind of wrap themselves around the individual as tightly as they do and provide a lot of guidance, a lot of support.
3: It's a big uh, we look at it as a two-pronged approach. There's a big chunk of what we do that is just based on recovery. Hey, you know, this is, if you're working the 12 steps, then every morning and, and whenever you wake up, let's pray and meditate. Whenever you go to bed at night, we got to do your nightly inventory. Look over your day, 10-step throughout the day, and we remind them of that. We've got other guys in the house that are doing that with them. you got a buddy in there. And at the same time, the other approach that we have is, is adulting. It's a it's adulting one hundred and one. It's hey, we got to go get a job now. A lot of a lot of times, these guys haven't got a job for a long time. I don't have a social security card. I don't have a, a current driver's license. I don't have insurance. I don't have skills. I don't have a resume. Well, here's how to do all those things, and here's a simple way to do all those things. Walking them through those sort of things, um, and and when you when you combine the both of those, they start to achieve some some success in their lives. It's it's a big milestone when they get that. You know, not expired driver's license, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs>
1: and and that is so common. Uh, and and I don't think people realize the consequences of addiction. Those things or substance use disorder, those things happen early on, and then you get a ticket for an expired driver's license, and then you get arrested for your second one, and you just the it becomes so prevalent in life the need to stay under the influence, hijacks just basic responsibility. And when that's done for a year or two, it's just a mess.
2: Oh, absolutely. And and on top of all of that, you have the negative consequences in your life to deal with on a day-to-day basis, but you're also dealing with, and we oftentimes forget this, a brain impairment. This is somebody who is yeah. not functioning anywhere near maximal capacity, you know. The, so it, it's really, really tragic. And and I I think the underlying message here it probably goes without being repeated. But I'm going to repeat it: recovery is so much more than simply not using.
1: Oh my God! Yes,
2: and that's the first piece. That's yeah, the first. P-
1: uh, there's a first step. We admit we're powerless over our addiction and our life has become unmanageable. Yeah. That's the first one.
2: <laughs> and, and and so when we're talking about recovery, we're talking about a whole new life. We're talking about a new lifestyle. And I like to say that, you know, recovery is about pretty much equal parts waking up and growing up. And And the waking up part is kind of like where I focus my attention, which is, uh, the spirituality component, uh, waking up to your power, to to your capacity to be connected with the world around you in a in a spiritually edifying way. Uh, but then there's the growing up part, which is a lot tougher. I think.
1: <laughs> I, I I can I can vouch for that. I'm I'm told by a lot of clinicians and and folks that. A lot of times the age you started using is about the age you're at when you end up in recovery.
2: Yeah, emotionally. Emotionally. Speaking.
1: Yeah. For mm-hmm. me, that was 11 years old. And yeah. I think about that sometimes. That's a, that's a hard spot to be in at 26, 27 years old to have hidden all of those things that you need to experience under the, uh, under the, the influence of, of a mood or mind-altering substance. Yeah, That's where you're starting from on some of these young men yeah. and uh, some of the older men, too, that, that have been using for 20, 30 years.
2: Now we've kind of circled around now to where we're pointing to one of the primary values of 12-step programs because they do foster growing up. They do foster taking on greater responsibility for your life. And, you know, we're, we are up against a break here again. Uh, again,
1: 512-836-0590 if you want to join us on News Radio KLBJ. Uh, we'll be back in, uh, oh, just a couple of minutes here and, and wrap up our show.
0: Providing professional opinions, resources, and guidance for addiction treatment every Sunday from noon to one. The Recovery Hour with Mark Myers.
1: Here's and we are back on... Uh, KLBJ, News Radio 590. Of course, if you want to call or text, 512-836-0590. And uh, you know, I, I I often think we need a recorder in here because it seems like we say the most brilliant things during the news segments and during the commercial <laughs> segments. <laughs> but I I would like to throw that back over to uh, to our guest, Patrick Hensley, of course, Dr. Kirby Stewart here with us as well, and I'm Mark Myers with PR Recovery. But Patrick, you were, you were talking about when someone has been using a long time or under the influence, I, I call it using, when someone is under the obsessive compulsive use of alcohol and drugs and other substances, what does that do to emotional develop, uh, development, in, in your opinion? You, you have a lot of experience. Immediately it immediately halts it. It halts it, exactly. And, and you had a very eloquent way of putting that. If, if they're drinking until 35, what, you, were, you were commenting on that.
3: Sure, yeah. Take, take somebody that's 35 years old and has been addicted to the drugs or drinking for, for 15 years. That means his, his emotional and kind of cognitive abilities stopped when he was 20. Um, he stopped feeling emotions when he started using. That's probably a lot of the reasons why people start using them in the first place. They don't want to feel the emotions. So anytime a hard emotion comes on, they take a pill or take a drink, and they numb it out. They don't have to feel it. So when they decide to change their lives and stop using the drug, stop drinking, these emotions come back. Well, what do you do? What do you do with these emotions come back that you, you, you don't, you've lost your crutch? You don't have your crutch to deal with them anymore. That is where the community comes in. That's where the camaraderie and brotherhood of Hensley House comes in. Of, of other, there's a lot of good places out there that teach that. that sense Not, of a Not a Shows glum lot. Shows you how precisely. to have some fun. Yeah. And you know that's one of the beauties about Hensley House is yes, these guys, we respect the disease. Everybody in that house works a very solid program of recovery. That, that's first and foremost. That's our number one priority. The second thing we do is we have a blast doing it. We have a lot of fun. So it's a really good time with these guys are enjoying themselves. So when they get there, they, they don't want to leave. They stay. They stay for a long time. And what happens is these guys in the house get to know each other really well. And when someone is feeling off, when someone is having these emotions that they used to drown out or numb out, um, they now have a feeling of brotherhood and camaraderie that they can go and talk to somebody else in the house. Hey, you know, this just happened to me, or I got this phone call and it really jammed me up. Um, what would you do in this situation? It, do. yeah. well, I don't know how to think about this. What? How would you deal with this? Or just hey, I just need to talk to somebody. I'm not looking for feedback. I just I just want to bend your ear. I just want to use you as a sounding board just to be able to get this out and get it open because I'm not sure how to feel about this. That's where that community comes in. That's where the having somebody there that you can talk with to connect with. That's a huge piece. That's a very big piece of it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the living circumstance in a sober living facility is so much closer to reality than that that we experience while we're in a residential treatment center, that it's just a lot more valuable. Uh, I, I just got a text from uh, uh, a mom who uh, lost her son to this disease. And she talks about how after three months, he went back to a living circumstance in which she had a couple of roommates that drank alcohol. Well, he, his sobriety didn't last long, and it led to his death.
1: And that is so hard to hear.
2: Yeah, it's just heartbreaking. And
1: it is, and, and it's the number one cause of death between 18 and 45-year-olds. Yeah. And I sometimes don't think we put, not to be a downer on a beautiful Sunday afternoon in the Texas Hill Country, but that's the elephant in the room. This disease is killing people at an alarming rate. happens every 11 days in the United States as far as fatalities. It is mind-numbing to think that there was over 122,000 people, and that was just accidental overdose, uh, opioid overdose. Add another 30, 40, 50,000 to that, to alcohol, to other substance use disorder. It's just
3: uh, well, there's no words. There's really no words.: I mean, imagine, imagine if an airliner with 288 people crashed every day.: Yeah, exactly. That would be getting so much more news. Uh, yeah,
1: or cardiothoracic surgery having an 80 percent failure rate. I mean, it, it, it it's just this yeah. is a disease, and we don't treat it as much. We are as such. We treat it as a, we treat it as a, a moral failing or a, a choice, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Well, we, there is no choice.
2: No, it's a disease of choice. Uh, People who develop addictions, by the time they're in full-blown addictive behavior, they've lost the power of choice. And a lot of recovery is about restoring that. And that's done a little bit at a time, over time, as we mature and grow into the capacity to exercise judgment. A lot of that has to do with overcoming the denial in the disease and and we overcome the denial by telling the truth about it and that's that's the conversation that we're trying to evoke on a public-wide basis and you know even if you're just a concerned citizen and you don't necessarily know anybody who's suffering from addiction and if indeed that's the case you are a rare individual but even (laughs) if you are just that concerned citizen uh Please uh, become an advocate for what we call demand reduction, because the way to win the war on drugs is by decreasing demand, not supply. We can't decrease supply. No. Everything we do to decrease supply only enhances it.
1: Absolutely. And and again, five one two eight three six zero five ninety. If you want to join our discussion this afternoon, um, you know it. Uh, I, I, I sometimes get a little tongue-tied on that because of we just have to do better. That's the thing that I always come back to on this show. As an industry of treatment centers, as a community, law enforcement, legislation, everybody, we have to do better to reduce demand mm-hmm. for this drug and, and to reduce harm reduction, I guess. I'm I'm not real sure I'm being clear. This is a disease that is a brain disorder. It is a chronic, it is the most insidious because it tells you you don't have it. It tells you there's nothing wrong. It tells you you can handle whatever. And then people die from it routinely. Yeah. And, and it's just... Uh,
2: well, I, had, I had someone, Mark, uh, text me saying, you guys keep saying we have to do better. Well, what does that look like?
3: Education I, to me.
2: There you go. It's a good point, Education. Patrick. How? Who, what would you take a run at that? That's
3: a tough one because uh, it's big. Isn't I, I see. It's big. I see two parts. Like for me, growing up, uh, I I was born in 1980, so at my childhoods through the 80s and 90s, we had no discussions about mental health. None. None whatsoever. I, I didn't know what depression or anxiety was. We didn't have that. We didn't talk about it. But you know, the drugs and alcohol that we had that day, if you. You you could experiment, and and if you did, and something went wrong, you, you had a bad night. You were in the fetal position for a little while. You had a weird hangover the next day. Now we have so much so much, you know, eyes on and awareness around mental health, mental health this, mental health that, all over the place. However, the drugs keep changing, because now if you experiment, you're dead.
1: Absolutely. And,
3: and, and so, you know, as, as we grow with so much more uh, focus on mental health and talking about it, the drugs are growing, the labs in different countries are growing, the, the things that they're making, the synthetics that they're making, um, it's just become so very much more dangerous. Um, so you know, as, as we increase our, our discussions about mental health and trying to re- reduce the, the, the demand, um, the different types of drugs are changing out there and it's becoming so much more lethal. You know, worst-case scenario back in the day, you, you, you had a bad bad trip, bad hangover. Now, you're just dead.
1: Dr. Carter, one of our friends of our program, was discussing the other day that, you know, if someone comes into the ER and says, I was using this. And they said, no, it's fentanyl. I was using this. Nope, it's fentanyl. I smoked some real high-potent marijuana. No, it was yard trimmings with fentanyl. I mean, it's just, yeah, that's the prevalent they're, they're, drug, they're It they're and,
2: and it kills. They're adding fentanyl to everything nowadays. I just saw an article actually in the medical literature saying how much uh, methamphetamine samples are infiltrated with fentanyl now
1: and the damage that that can cause um, on heavy usage is is mind boggling and you know folks we're we're rapidly running out of time here again. I, I keep threatening to make this a two-hour show um, <laughs> because we just don't have enough mm-hmm. to cover everything. Um, Patrick, again, man, thank you for being out here. How,
3: how do we find Not a Glum Lot? Shoot, okay. You yeah, have Not a Glum Lot's on the World Wide Web at uh, wearenotglum.org and Hensley Recovery. Hensley, uh, HensleyRecovery.com is the website for the Hensley House, Sober Living Home, either one of those. So wearenotglum.org or HensleyRecovery.com. Uh, that's how you find both of those always happy to chat with anybody on there we get a lot of messages that we respond back and forth with we always have some good conversations on there
1: and of course Dr. Stewart you and I at, at personal responsibility recovery um I, I welcome any questions any any contacts on our on our website we have a we have a lot of resources at our hands
2: yeah yep we do y- you know i got a la- one last text somebody's asking me in uh, my orthopedic surgeon's office, how is your shoulder? Well, <laughs> I had shoulder replacement surgery, and I'm doing great, thanks to Liberty Hill Physical Therapy. I want to put that plug in. Yay, yay, yay!
3: They're Katie. actually a
1: great. They're a great organ. I yeah. live in Liberty Hill.
3: Yeah. as yeah. Well. I needed to put that in. Thanks for the text. And a big plug to you guys, a personal recovery responsibility. Like I've seen people come to you and ask for help and you're not saying, oh, just come to us. It's like, let's look out there and see what no, the big market has to offer no, and see what it, the best fit is. And there's that's rare. You guys of are niches. a rarity that do that. So there's thank a you.
1: lot of niches out there. And, you know, we're, we're wrapping up our show here and we talk a lot about steps. I'm going to put a challenge out to the general public because a lot of people don't know what the steps are. The 10th step that you referred to every day, Patrick, The 10th step of our program says we continue to take personal inventory, meaning how was our day? Let's really look at our day, personal inventory, and promptly admit when we're wrong. We'll be back here next week.